Hello and welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. And I am happy to welcome you today to our final episode of season two of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. Today, we're gonna talk about Goldilocks debt. And what we mean by that is you can have too much debt on an asset and you can have too little. And what's that right amount? What is the Goldilocks amount of debt? And we're gonna share with you today how we at Mara Polling think about that and allow you to uh, then give that some thought in terms of A, how you might employ that same strategy on any investments you're performing yourself in terms of uh, single family rentals or duplexes or fourplexes that you might be uh, purchasing and investing in yourself. Or if you're choosing to work with a sponsor uh, like Mara Polling, that, uh, that you can use this logic to evaluate the level of uh, debt and leverage that uh, that, that sponsor is using, uh, just as many of our clients uh, engage with us and ask us questions about that. So we thought we'd share that all with you today. Uh, as I said, today happens to be the final episode in season two of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. We are gonna be back with season three on January 1st of 2019. We've got lots of great content that we're gonna cover next year. We're gonna start the year off very focused on the objective that we at Mara Poling have, which is to provide secure, stable, tax-advantaged cash flow and equity growth to our investors. And we're gonna spend some time next year on those returns, on how we can boost cash returns, on how we can increase stability of assets, how to grow equity, how to optimize the security of an asset, and how to take full advantage of the unique tax advantages that real estate provides, in particular that multifamily real estate uh, provides and so I hope you'll join us and uh, take part in season three. If you have not subscribed yet uh, on whatever channel you're listening to us on, whether it's iTunes or uh, Stitcher or uh, Buzzsprout or Alexa, Google Play, any of the other platforms that you're uh, listening to us on, uh, please subscribe so you don't miss out on any of that great uh, talent. I'd also encourage you to go back and take a look at the sessions that we have uh, from this year. Uh, we've talked about uh, value add, we've talked about uh, taxes, the tax man cometh was one of our uh, most popular uh, episodes. Uh, it's just math, uh, that was another great one. Uh, supply and demand, uh, the fact that there really isn't any incremental supply in the marketplace. Uh, there's a, a great session on that. And you can also visit us at the Learning Center at marapolling.com, that's M-A-R-A, P-O-L-I-N-G.com, and you'll find lots of great topics there. Uh, we still have, I think, four webinars left in uh, this particular series that we're running, uh, and they extend out into the beginning of next year that you can register for. You'll also find recordings of all the sessions we've already had so far this year, and you can take advantage of participating uh, in them via recording. So, um, so with that, let's go ahead and dive into this notion of Goldilocks debt or Goldilocks leverage, however it is you wanna uh, describe that. 
So I think everyone would agree that when you're purchasing an asset, whether it's a firm like Mara Poling that's purchasing the asset, or again, whether you're doing this yourself for an individual real estate investment, that um, you can't have too much debt, right? You can be over leveraged and you can also have too little debt. Uh, and so by definition, somewhere in between those two is either a singular spot uh, or a range that is just right. Uh, so how do you know where that where that is? So let's explore a little bit what the two extremes look like. So let's start with too little, because that one's easy to do. Um, the smallest amount of debt you can have on a property is zero, right? You can own it free and clear and have no debt on the asset. Um, that's the way it would look, right? If we happen to purchase an asset, and on occasion we may purchase an asset all cash, uh, in which we would then uh, put leverage on the asset after we close. That may be something we simply do to expedite a closing process. So occasionally you might see an asset with no leverage on it, no debt. Um, typically that would not be how we would hold an asset for, uh, for a traditional hold period. Um, I do know individuals that do single family uh, rentals as well as some other smaller residential size rentals that will hold assets without any debt on it. Um, ultimately, this is everyone's decision as to what's the right amount of debt for them to have. Um, clearly, if you are carrying no debt on an asset, then uh, your returns are extremely limited. Uh, leverage provides a very reasonable way to boost returns and can be done in a manner that realistically adds no risk. Uh, carrying 10% debt 25% debt, 30% debt, those numbers, there, there's, it's almost impossible to make an argument that there is risk associated with that kind of debt. Um, now let's go to the other end of the spectrum, too much debt. Well, could you carry uh, 100%? Uh, sure you could, right? You could lever a property where you have 100% debt. Um, we, we don't really have that ability to do that because of the commercial nature of the investments we make. We're not going to find a lender that's going to be willing to, uh, to put us in that uh, position. Um, but it is possible that you could be over levered uh, in total, right? Uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, I know individuals that carry modest amounts of debt on the individual assets that they own. Uh, these are maybe duplexes or fourplexes, uh, they might be 60% uh, debt. Uh, and when I discussed with them, well, so how did you fund the rest of the investment? Oh, well, I took out a home equity line on my primary residence, and that's where I borrowed the money to do this. So they actually are 100% levered, which uh, the challenge with being 100% levered is while you can really boost your returns, I mean, any dollar of return, is providing you almost an infinite percentage of return. Um, it works the other way as well. Any dollar of loss uh, essentially wipes you out uh, completely. Uh, and so you can absolutely have too much debt. Um, you, could be, you could, in the example I gave, you could be north of 100%. Uh, for an investment like uh, what we'll do on an individual asset, generally 80% is the upper limit of what a lender will talk to us about. Uh, we think 80% um, 
in total is too high, and I'll explain the in total in a moment. We think 80% is on the too high spectrum. So if you got 80 on the high end and you got 30 or 40 on the low end, that's a pretty big range. Um, that's not the range we're actually suggesting, but that's that's kind of the starting point we'll uh, we'll operate with. Um, I mentioned um, that uh, a little something just a moment ago that uh, that our leverage actually includes some other numbers, and so uh, and this may be typical of other sponsors that you uh, that you work with or other sponsors that you'll talk to. Uh, and when I say typical, uh, they may uh, and likely don't follow the exact same strategy we do. Uh, but you should ask about these um, these elements. So uh, I'll, I'll use an example of a $10 million property. If we go to buy a $10 million property uh, and we take out a 75% loan to value loan, we're borrowing $7.5 million. So we need $2.5 million to purchase that. Um, we are not going to finance any of the closing costs. So, you know, there's uh, title fees and legal fees and other expenses to uh, create the uh, uh, LLCs that are going to hold the asset and those sorts of things. Uh, and then there's some other expenses around acquisition, around the due diligence and the like. We're not going to um, leverage any of those. We're going to pay cash for those. And then there's the capital improvements, which on a $10 million asset could be a million dollars or more. And again, we're going to most likely fund that out of cash, uh, meaning that our going in leverage, even on a 75% LTV, is going to be less than 75%. We also hold a pretty healthy amount of reserves um, for each asset. If it's an individual asset investment, it's held at the asset level. Um, our fund, uh, the Mara Polling Total Return Fund, uh, holds those at the fund level, uh, and that further reduces our leverage. Um, so the higher end for us probably would be something in the 70s in terms of total leverage, when you look at all the numbers we just described, uh, we're typically in the 60s, but high 70s is not a terrible place for us to be. Um, and then and then the lower end is probably around 50, the high 40s. And so I want to go into a little detail about, well, where do those numbers come from? Why is it that we think uh, that's the Goldilocks space? Um, so let's talk about the too much debt. When you add more debt to an asset, you are increasing the rate of return. Um, so I'm just going to do a little bit on uh, leverage for a moment. And those of you that are comfortable with uh, this uh, concept, thank you for bearing with me for three minutes while I do this. Uh, and for those of you that aren't, uh, this is a little taste and you can uh, you can find more material at the Learning Center at marapolling.com that'll help you with this. So if you own an asset free and clear, right? We buy a $10 million property and we, and we pay $10 million for it. And over the course of time, it becomes worth $13 million. We have made 30% on our $10 million. Now we're not calculating in the amount of cash that's been thrown off or anything else. We're just talking about the growth in equity at this particular point in time. So we made 30%. And if that took three years for that to happen, then we made 10% a year. Um, well, now let's put 50% leverage on it. So instead of putting $10 million in, I've invested $5 million. So now that $3 million gain isn't $3 million on a $10 million investment, it's a $3 million gain 
on a $5 million investment. So it's not 30% return, it's a 60% return. And again, if that happened over a three-year time frame, that's 20%. So I have doubled my return. And another way to think about that is, if I took out that kind of leverage, I could actually go buy a second $10 million property, right? Uh, so I'd have a $5 million asset uh, investment and I'd have a five. Together, that's the 10 million I invested, but I now own $20 million of real estate, not 10. And so I'm, I'm gaining return by doing that. Um, the risk is uh, if when I bought that $10 million property and I paid cash, if it went down in value by $5 million, something horrific happens, well, I still have $5 million. I've not been wiped out. My $10 million investment is now worth just five. If I used, used leverage on it, my $10 million uh, asset in which I put $5 million is now only worth $5 million and my $5 million is gone. Uh, I have lost all my money. And the higher the amount of leverage that you have, the higher their return, but the greater the risk that you could be wiped out uh, from that particular standpoint, that you could lose 100% of your equity position. And as you get above 50, 60, 70, 80, you start getting north of 80%, um, you're really extremely levered uh, because you have a very small amount of equity inside these assets. When everything's growing, that's a great place to be. You're really making a lot of money. When there's a downturn, you're going to get pinched and that really becomes the issue and why we come up with the numbers we do is a function of uh, a metric we use called break-even occupancy and that's how we determine where that upper limit is it it doesn't have a lot to do with what the lender will loan us i think in every instance so far we've taken um, less debt on than the lender was willing to provide us, meaning we left some money on the table from a leverage standpoint. And it's because we wanted to have a fairly healthy break-even occupancy. We'd like to have our assets in a position where they can withstand a 150% to 200% spike in vacancy historically, and uh, which means during a downturn, uh, we'll still be cash flow positive. And that's the position that we want to be in, even if it's a very severe downturn, more severe than what we've seen historically. And historically, as you can tell over the last uh, five to 10 years, there's been some fairly significant uh, swings uh, given the, the housing market 10 years ago. So, um, so that's what bounds us on the upper end is this break-even number. Uh, and as I said, we probably wouldn't want to be uh, you know, above 80, uh, our LTVs are typically in the 70s. And then by the time you add these other reserve numbers, we're maybe down in the 60s. So 60s is a really nice place to be, 60, 65, something like that. Now, on the too low side, um, you end up with an issue about lazy equity, right? So as we said, if you didn't have any debt on the property, out of the $10 million you paid for that asset, some of that money is not doing any work at all. It's not, you're not getting anything back for it. So if you if you took out a 10% a LTV loan, you'd have a million and you could put that million to work somewhere and it's not really gonna cost you anything. Um, you're not gonna have any risk associated with that. Uh, and you could grow that to 20%, to 30, to 40. 
we think when you start getting to 50% and above, you begin to enter an area where there's potentially some issues. And again, it goes back to this break-even number. If you go too high, that's when you'll tell what that is. So what sets the boundary for the too low? Well, it tends to be, again, this break-even range, that we think that range is somewhere in the neighborhood of the mid-50s to around 70%. Um, you can start out a little higher than that, and you can go a little lower than that. When you get much below 55%, so you get down to maybe 50% or into the high 40s, you start to have a significant amount of lazy equity. Um, so again, we'll take our $10 million property, uh, and if we're at, if we're getting all the way down to 55%, and then we continue to drop and we get down to 45%, well, on a $10 million value, that's a million dollars of equity that's not doing anything, and that would be a meaningful number to free up somehow. Um, and the math is not what I just described. So, so here, here's the piece that um, makes this a little more challenging for all of us. And that is everything we just talked about is actually built on a moving target because it's not a $10 million property. It's a $10 million property when we purchase it, but based on how it is operated over time and what's going on in the marketplace, that value increases and it might increase rapidly. It might increase more steadily. Uh, there'll be a trend line over maybe a five-year hold period, but there'll be, you know, sort of peaks and valleys in that trend line as it as it moves up. So that $10 million building becomes a $10.5 million and an 11 and a $12 million and so on, all the way up to maybe being a $13 million property. Well, as it's growing in value, your note, if it's an interest-only note, the interest, the note value is staying the same. If it's a amortizing note or interest only for a period of time and then it becomes amortizing, you begin paying down some principal. So your seven and a half million dollar note becomes a $7.4 million note and a 7.3 and so on. Um, you may get to a point where you've got a $13 million property and you've only now got a $7 million note on it. Well, now you're down at 55% which is, as we said, we're starting to get near the lower limit of where we would wanna be. Let's say it drops a little more and you get down to um, 50%, okay? So you've got um, a half a percent on a $13 million property. You've got $650,000 in lazy equity. The challenge is how do you access $650,000? You could take out a supplemental loan or you could refinance the entire property. $650,000 is not a lot of money to be doing that for. So we tend not to do that. We would look for it to get into the 40s. And by the time you're in the 40s, you're probably in a position where maybe there's a million dollars in there that's not doing anything. And you could put a million dollars. We could put a million dollars to work and make some real money with it. So that's what we would um, look to do is to access that in one way, um, shape, or form. Now, how we might do that is um, we could, as I just said, we could take out a supplemental loan, so a second, if you will. We could also sell the asset uh, and do a sale exchange as an example via 1031. We're more likely to look to sell the asset. Um, the time frame I just described is probably gonna be around five years to get to the, the numbers I was just discussing. 
by the time we've gotten to five years, we've also um, been able to harvest a fair amount of the tax value out of the property. And we certainly could hold the asset longer and continue to get a very nice return, uh, which is why a supplemental uh, or a refinance might make some sense. Uh, it's also quite likely that what we would want to do for both tax reasons and this lazy equity issue is we would want to do a sale exchange and purchase a new asset that gets that million dollars um, back to work, uh, which gives us some additional um, upside as we um, as we go forward. So um, those are our numbers. That's how we think about it. Um, if you are looking to invest uh, and you were to pick up the phone or shoot me an email, by the way, it's pat at marapolling.com. If you were to shoot me an email and say, I would like to learn more about investing with you, this is the conversation I would have with you around how we manage debt and how we manage our leverage. And you might listen to that and go, wow, that sounds really good. It sounds like you're a little on the conservative side of the fence. That's where I'd like to be. Let's do something together. You also might listen and say, you know, I'm really looking for better returns and I'm, I'm completely satisfied taking on some higher risk to do that. Great. Then you might find another sponsor that you'll chat with that you'd have that uh, conversation with. And if you're doing this on your own, if, again, if you're buying a fourplex and you're looking at how much debt you're going to put on it, um, there's a couple things I would encourage you to do. One is you need to talk to a number of lenders so you can get an understanding of where the marketplace is in terms of what you might be able to secure. Two, make sure when you're doing your math, you include all your debt. Uh, if you have a 50% loan on the actual property you're buying, but you've also taken out a home equity line that's equivalent to 30% of that asset, and you're using that money to make improvements and to pay for part of the purchase, then you're 80% leveraged. Um, and that's the way you should do your math. Uh, you can't really keep that other number off the books because if you hadn't purchased the asset, you wouldn't have taken out that uh, additional line on your, uh, on your home equity line. And then you need to, again, use your underwrite. Notice we've said that in a number of these sessions. If you don't have some sort of underwriting methodology, you need to develop one. Um, and uh, use your underwrite, and then you need to essentially do some what ifs. What if I took out a higher piece of leverage? And look at what you see that goes on with returns. You'll see the returns inch up, but you'll also see things like the break-even occupancy and the debt cover and so on. Those are going to reduce, and as those reduce, your risk increases. And there'll be a point where you'll say, you know, that's just more risk than I'm comfortable with, where your lender's going to say that's more risk than they're comfortable with. And that's going to give you that cap of the, okay, I can't go above that. And then you need to look on the other side in terms of, all right, how much lazy equity am I comfortable having in here? If it's an investment you've made on your own, are you comfortable having 100000 or 200000 There'll be a point where you'll say, gosh, that's enough money. I could go, I could go buy another property or I could go make... Uh, some investments in existing properties and improve them. I could do some value add work. And then that may give you a sense of what that lower boundary is. So there is no actual answer to what the Goldilocks point is or what the Goldilocks range is in terms of uh, debt or leverage. I've shared with you what ours uh, are and how we think about it. Uh, and you'll need to develop one on your own. Um, I am happy to answer your questions uh, about this subject. You can email me at pat at marapolling.com. 
And uh, as I said, we are starting season three on January 1. Uh, uh, so when you're watching all the great football games and enjoying time with your family, if you'd like to hear the very first episode of season three, uh, you can get it from us that day. Uh, and uh, we'll be all we'll be fine with it if you don't hear us until January 2nd. That's cool, too. Um, so uh, with that, I hope you uh, have a wonderful holiday season, uh, whatever holiday you may celebrate this uh, this time of year, and that you have a very uh, happy new year. Uh, we look forward to seeing you on season three, uh, starting on January 1st. And with that, uh, I bid you adieu from Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. Thanks. <laughs>